As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can choose from a variety of free ebooks. But now for today's show. On Friday the 19th of May, the evangelist, apologist and author Tim Keller died following a decline in his health after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2020. Christians around the world took to social media to express their gratitude for Tim and the impact of his work on their faith and ministries. I'm joined today by Colin Hansen, Editor-in-Chief of the Gospel Coalition and Executive Director of the Keller Centre for Cultural Apologetics. Colin recently wrote a book entitled Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. Colin, thank you so much for joining us again. We've touched on some of the sort of key moments in Tim Keller's life, but one of the places you've already touched on it where he sort of learned to be contextually and culturally relevant was at Hopewell in Virginia, wasn't it? It was. So this is not the place that you would expect Tim Keller to be. In fact, uh, when he, he come from Bucknell, which is a significant liberal arts college, you go to Gordon-Conwell, a very heady kind of place north of Boston, and you expect, and as Tim did, okay, I'm going to do ministry in New England, or at least the northeastern United States. And instead, he can't find a job. One of the reasons that he can't find a job is because The Presbyterian Church in America is largely a Southern denomination at the time. It's brand new, uh, just four years old. And so the opening that he gets is for a three-month proving ground, essentially, in this small town of Hopewell, Virginia, the quote-unquote chemical capital of the South. And um, they were, I mean, I, I talked with Tim and Kathy, the best man at their wedding, and he said, well, they must have been desperate. (laughs) <laughs> and and I said, well, yeah, Tim and Kathy were so desperate that they, in fact, had tried to be postal carriers because they were th- they weren't going to get a job. And Bruce responded and said, I wasn't talking about the Kellers. I was saying the church must have been so desperate to bring them <laughs> bring them in. They would not have been very impressive. I thought that was pretty funny, but um, it was a. It, I mean, he had all three children born there, all three boys born there. He's doing every kind of ministry. He preached fifteen hundred messages in three years or in nine years, excuse me, um, preaching three times a week. He's got Wednesday night. He's got Sunday morning. He's got Sunday evening. 
it was quite a proving ground. He also does his doctor of ministry, which sets him up to be able to go to Philadelphia. Um, it was, uh, it was everything at once. And I think one thing to add is that when he gets to Hopewell, you've got about a hundred members at his Presbyterian church and only two of them had college education and that college education, they were elementary school teachers. Most of the members had about a sixth grade education. And so the way he, the contrast he drew, he says in Hopewell, Virginia, and this applies for all of us still in ministry today, depending on where we are, the way you love people makes them want to listen to you. That was Hopewell. And then in New York, he said, the way you talk, people have to respect you before they're willing to let you love them. So he learned very different kinds of ministry. And it's part of what made him so well-rounded, I think. Mm. And you talk in your book about his sort of emphasis on listening really being shaped in Hopewell. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, you're, they're not going to take to somebody, especially from the north, coming down there and telling them what to think about everything. You've got to respect them. And one of the best ways to respect people is by listening to them. So he went from Hopewell to, well, there was a sort of little bit in the middle, but he ended up at Redeemer. How did that happen? And what was he doing? And, and how did he end up there? So he's at Westminster Seminary. And for all intents and purposes, was going to plan to be there for the whole rest of his life. He was well-suited, very popular as a professor. I think all of us could have imagined Tim Keller as a professor. Um, it just seems so natural. Um, but instead, he really feels this pull. He's going back and forth to New York, and he's seeing what God is doing there. He's seeing a need. He's seeing an opportunity. He's talking. He's, he's praying. He's advising. He's counseling. And they're telling him, no, 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 stop trying to find somebody else to come here. We want you to come here. And it was in the UK. He's traveling around and he learns when he gets home that the person he thought was going decided the Lord was not leading him and his wife to be able to go there. So he realizes it's got to be me. But Kathy was so wise and, and humble about the whole situation. She said, look, if you want to plant a successful church, just find out where God is going to send a revival. Just move there a month ahead of time. Uh, they were really, uh, they really viewed God having gone before them. And that's why in the book, I focus so much on the other things that were happening through places like executive ministries in New York to set up the, the quick success that would be Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the early 1990s. So they're at Redeemer, and then obviously the, the tragic World Trade Center destruction happened in 2001, 9-11, um, and Tim preached a very important sermon the Sunday after those terrorist attacks, didn't he? He did, and I mean, you had about a thousand extra people come to worship on that day, um, even for those of us who would have watched it um, on TV, it was traumatic, but let alone those people who saw it with their own eyes, who who heard it, all the sirens, the endless sirens, who smelled it, um, that, that it was a very sensory and difficult experience. But on September 16th, he preached what you, I mean, what you would want is a message on hope actually ended with a with a Tolkien reference, one of the things that um, it, people would say about, I mean, Lewis was the person Tim quoted if he didn't have time to prepare his message. Tolkien was the person he would think of. Lord of the Rings is what he would think of when he, when he just emotionally, viscerally thinking about good and evil. And, um, and that's where he turned was that um, in the end, even when all seems lost, 
is going to turn out okay. And that we know that because of the resurrection. And that's, that's the message he gave. And I think his leadership and that message did help to consolidate the city in a really difficult time and help Redeemer to continue to be an anchor spiritually for that city in a very difficult, difficult time. Well, and following that, sort of 800 or so more people came consistently afterwards, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. It was one of the only churches where there was that consistent follow through. I talked with a woman, Christina Stanton, she and her husband had come to faith and even began to both work at Redeemer after that. Um, it, it was something that in many ways God had prepared the church to be able to do because so much of it was a kind of a diaconate ministry of mercy, handing out money. There was more than a million dollars that came unsolicited to the church that they had to be able to figure out how to, how to hand out. And so, but it also put some significant strains on Tim's leadership. He even thought maybe I need to step away from ministry altogether because it was so difficult um, during that traumatic time. But, um, but it was, um, it was, it was clearly a pivotal time, not only for the Kellers, but for the church. And, and one of the main reasons that Tim would eventually become so well known around the world. Now, a lot of Tim's ministry in New York was to non-Christians. Was that intentional or was that just sort of happen chance based on where he was? Uh, that was certainly the whole point. Um, in Manhattan, specifically in 1989, you had a few other strong evangelical churches, but they weren't particularly large. And um, they were not, uh, they were good churches, but they weren't necessarily adapted to some of the unique dynamics of New York City. And so that was a, a key. He wanted a, a church that would appeal not just to people who are coming through New York City from the rest of the country, which is a very common thing, but people who were truly from New York City, something that felt to them like New York City that as a, a part of the city, not in terms of the worst aspects of it, but simply, I think one of the ways they described it was, a play, if, if you enjoyed the opera, if you enjoyed seeing Broadway shows, um, that was kind of your lifestyle in New York, you would also, this would be a place that would communicate to you. So it's one reason why the music quality has always been so strong or why when, he, when even they would read scripture still today, it needs to be read at almost a professional quality because that's the kind of people who live in New York and are drawn to that city. So he was always trying to reach those people who are far from Christ, as opposed to trying to just gather and consolidate the people who were passing through. And how did he get into apologetics? Again, was that kind of a natural progression given the sort of people he was ministering to in New York? Yeah, I think that's one thing he saw from the very, very beginning with Ed Clowney. So he goes to this outreach on on existentialism and uh, as a student um, uh, way back in 1970. And so you, you've got a situation, Ed Clowney is, he had done a master's degree at Yale on Soren Kierkegaard. And at the time, Albert Camus is all the rage in existentialism. So he sees the way this Christian mind can navigate these issues and defend the faith and articulate the gospel in this compelling intellectual, but also intuitive way. And so I think that was just something he picked up on the very beginning. So you go from Ed Clowney to R.C. Sproul, who was an especially gifted apologist. 
Now, Tim would eventually adjust his perspective when it would come to apologetics, engaging in more cultural apologetics. But, um, but very clearly, that was part of his Christian experience from the beginning. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. We're going to be talking more about his cultural apologetics in a later episode. But but what impact did the, I think you sort of quoted them as the big four critics of secular modernity in your book? I mean, that's Charles Taylor, Alistair McIntyre, Philip Reef, and Robert Bella. What, what impact did they have on Keller? Well, they really changed his perspective. We could we could go into this in, in greater detail, but really it played out over the course of his time in the Oxford missions and really believing that to be able to defend the faith we and be able to articulate it in this post-Christendom type moment, yes, we need to be sensitive toward, well, we need to preach the scriptures, first of all, like it can never be less than that. But we have to be able to guide people to even understand what they're accessing there. So, for example, you could have a question about homosexuality. And it would be a common question, obviously, when he's doing these Oxford missions. Well, you could say, well, here's what the Bible teaches. And that's perfectly fine. But you really have to get underneath it and talk about the role of identity in Western culture today and its uniqueness. And that's what he did. And so that's that just shows you the way that he believed that you, in this moment, there's some pre-evangelism that needs to be done um, to go along with the evangelism because people just don't really have the ears to necessarily hear what you're saying today. Do you think that's one of the reasons that Redeemer grew in such remarkable ways, this kind of the pre-evangelism and the sort of the unique way that he was doing things? Yeah, for sure. So, um, one of the things that he learned from Martin Lloyd-Jones is that you need to edify and evangelize at the same time. If you want non-Christians to be there, you have to preach as if they are there. And if you want, and when you're doing apologetics, you're actually answering questions that Christians have. So a non-Christian in the audience says, wow, he respects my concerns I really appreciate that. I'm not accustomed to Christians doing that. But then the Christian there is saying, mm, it's good that these other people are getting these answers to their questions. But secretly, they have a lot of the same questions and same doubts. And that's really part of what Charles Taylor talks about as the cross pressures of our age. Nobody is immune to, to being challenged in their faith. All of us have to defend our faith in a pluralistic um environment there. So yeah, he really, I think as much or perhaps more than anybody else modeled how to do that effectively in a rapidly changing landscape, certainly in the United States, but catching up to a little bit of where the UK had, had already been for several decades. So obviously Tim was sort of, you know, pastoring this incredibly successful church, seeing amazing things happen, people come to faith. Why did he step back in 2017 from Redeemer? Well, I, I mean, he had been planning for his succession for a long time. We're talking about in the, you know, the 1990s and early 2000s, they're already developing that plan uh, for his for his succession. Um, I, I think, though, the way I would turn here is I'd actually consider God's providence. He turned 70 in 2020. If he had waited until 70 instead of 67, 
then he would have been retiring at the same time he got his cancer diagnosis and at the same time COVID-19 hit and hit New York City especially hard. The fact that they got three years of preparation before those things was really important for the churches, just like we got three years with Tim after the diagnosis. So he was always planning to, you know, this was not a preaching platform for Tim, but an actual functioning congregation that he wanted to continue by God's grace into perpetuity. And so um, it's also just keeping with his convictions and his personality as well. And obviously that wasn't the end of Tim Keller's involvement. He was involved in the church planting. I mean, where did that start and what was the vision behind the church planting? Well, church planting was a part of his vision from the very beginning. He really developed that through Harvey Kahn and, and other missiologists going all um, going back to his Westminster days. Jack Miller is why he started Redeemer in part. And actually one of Tim's regrets, and I don't know that he really could have done anything about this, but one of his regrets is that his churches didn't multiply quicker. Redeemer grew a lot faster, I think, than probably anybody expected it to. And so it kind of became a megachurch style congregation, even by the mid-1990s. But his core conviction is that evangelism happens best in community, not with platform preaching, but in community, because that was, after all, his experience in InterVarsity going all the way back before he was a Christian. It's also the model of Labrie that he learned. So he wanted the congregations to multiply more quickly because he believed that that kind of community is where that evangelism happens. So that's where his church planning vision came out of. And you work for the Gospel Coalition. Why did Tim Keller co-found that back in 2005? Well, I think what he and Don Carson saw was actually that they had, they had spoken together and met at the EMA in the UK. And they said, wait a minute, there's no equivalent minister's assembly like this in the United States. So we need to bring this to the United States, a group that will try to help collectively to keep churches focused on the gospel, not to slide over here into liberalism, uh, one kind of cultural captivity, or to slide into a different kind of cultural captivity that we often see in the United States of political partisanship. But, but, but instead to stay focused on the means of grace, focused on expositional preaching, uh, focused on on doing it in a culturally appropriate and contemporary manner, but staying confessional, tied to historic standards, especially within the Reformed tradition. So that's what they wanted to see with the Gospel Coalition, but really they learned it from what they had seen in, in the UK and just wanted to bring that, uh, wanted to bring that to the United States. Well, you mentioned the Reformed tradition there. I guess for someone not really knowing what that is, what is Reformed theology? And how did Tim Keller become such an important voice in, I guess, in inverted commas, like the revival of Reformed theology? Yeah, I think the easiest way to look at that is um, really through the lens of some of the recent work on Neo-Calvinism. It comes out of the late 19th, early 20th centuries, especially in the Netherlands. But the idea is fairly simple, and it goes back to John Calvin. You can see this in Augustine as well, that our Christian faith is for all of life. It is not for just getting to heaven. It is not merely a private thing, not merely a personal thing. It is a public thing. It affects everything in life, and it comes at God's initiative. God's initiative in creation, his initiative in redemption, his initiative uh, to send his son again uh, to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. 
that's basically Reformed theology in there. And then confessionally, we see that in the Westminster tradition, um, especially of Presbyterianism, that we um, that, that Tim was a, an adherent of the Westminster Confession. So that's a Westminster standard. So that's the broader tradition there. But Tim held it in a very evangelical manner, as his as his mentor Ed Clowney had shown him that that we are that in part these standards, these this theology is a gift to the broader evangelical movement. Not that everybody has to agree, but this is a gift to the broader evangelical movement and should be conversant with them as opposed to a kind of a sectarian um, uh, practice of it. Colin, we're going to be speaking much more about Tim Keller, his impact on sort of cultural apologetics, the influence of C.S. Lewis and some of the other inklings on his life. But as we come to the end of this podcast, do you think Tim Keller will continue to have a profound lasting impact on the world even after his death? I do think so. And I would I would hope just as we continue to learn from Lloyd-Jones and Stott and Packer and their writings and reflections continue to influence us. I think I think Tim will slide in uh, pretty well alongside those people that he loved and learned so much from. Um, I do think there's a possibility that we'll, that we'll be studying him even more, that we'll see even more contributions that he made um, at a larger scale. That's really for you know, this generation and subsequent generations to work through. But at least I know in our generation, praise God, I'm thankful for the sermons. I'm thankful for the books. I wish he got to write some of the stuff that he wanted to. Um, that's a that's a shame, but it's all in God's providence. Uh, the Lord has given us a lot when you consider, especially that Tim's entire writing career almost ran from only 2008 to 2022. I've really never seen anything like that before. So just I'm glad we can still listen to those sermons and read those books. And what do you think he'd want to say to the church with a capital C? I guess obviously you're speaking within a US context. I'm in the UK. He was fairly in tune with both. Is there something that Tim Keller would want to say to the worldwide church, do you think? Well, I think it's pretty basic, especially when you get to the end of your life and it brings that kind of clarity. It's pretty simple. It's all about Jesus and it's all by grace. Um, you know, don't worry so much about your own reputation. Don't worry about um, everybody's attitudes towards you. Count yourself blessed because your name has been written in the book of life. That's what it's all about. And and it's not cliche. It's not. Um, it's just it's true. And um, now his faith is sight. And um, I just, it's so amazing to think about all that he worked for and preached about uh, being in, in full reality for him right now. I have no doubt that that's what he would have wanted us to, to focus on. Colin Hansen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And as always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for a free ebook. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.